Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. How are you all today? Um, I know it's a little bit of a surprise to see me up here, but I'm going to explain that. Don't anyone run away yet? Uh, my name is Matt Harris. My wife here, Sue Freeman, 40 years of marriage, working on another 40. But um, Pastor Stephen and Pastor Matt are away on, on vacation, and they asked me to stand in and, and provide a teaching of the Word this morning, and I'm so privileged and honored to be able to do that. Um, but I got to tell you, Angie's confession and the words that we just all sang pretty much covered everything. So I'm, I'm kind of done. If anyone has any questions about we, what we sang or what the call of confession was about, Angie and, and, and Nick will come up and answer that. Um, so actually, uh, a couple of quick announcements. Um, Men's and women's group are still meeting. They're meeting until August 18th. Uh, men's group is Tuesday night at 6.30 here. And women's group is 8 o'clock at Jody's house. So Wednesday at 8 o'clock, men's Tuesday at 6.30, all right? I believe the Canopy Lake event is coming up, and today is probably the last day to sign up. So go to the events page for Forest Hills Church um, put also on your radar sometime late in August, there will be an event that is being called the Back to School Bash. And this is going to be an opportunity for us to serve our community, to work in conjunction with the Boston Housing Authority to prepare kids to go back to school. Um, uh, one, one tiny little announcement, too, that just kind of came to my attention. I hope I get through this, but Afosa and Priscilla are expecting a baby. Yeah, praise God. Uh, you guys, we, we love you so much. And that little one that carrying. So um, anyways, whew, okay, I'm done. Uh, I want to tell you about our core values here at uh, City on a Hill. Um, our core values are gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that God created the world and us, but our sin keeps us from a right relationship with God. And that God's son, this is also the good news, God's son Jesus came to earth fully man and fully God and died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of all sins of all mankind. That's the gospel. That's the good news that we're here about. Community. Now, as individuals, we are not islands. And as a church, we are also not an island. We live in community with each other and with our neighbors and the city and the world. We do this so we can practice the many, many one another's from scripture, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, celebrate miracles in our lives with each other, forgive one another and love one another. Now, it's hard to practice the one another's when you're an island, when you're, when you're just an individual. So we, we wanna be together and invite people outside your bubble in to enjoy this fellowship. Admission, the gospel means good news, and it's such good news that we can't really keep it to ourselves. We believe that the gospel and living in community, we should be on mission to share this good news with others. 
Now, if you've been attending this summer's City on the Hill teaching series, you know that we've been diving into the Apostles' Creed and what it means for our church. And by the church, I mean you, I mean the people. Stephen taught us last week that the Apostles' Creed says, we believe in the church. And that does not refer to a building or a worship service. The church is the universal church of believers, past, present, and future. The church is the entirety, the collection, the whole group of people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the leader of their life and the forgiver of their sins. Now we're closing in on the end of the Apostles' Creed series, and I will be preaching today on the next section of the Apostles' Creed that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. So let me take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to come together and to worship you and to confess our sins and to be in a moment of trying to learn from your word what it is you would have us take away, Lord. Father, equip me to, uh, to share what you have shared with me all this week. Um, allow me to get out of the way and let your word and your truth come through clearly, Lord. Um, Father, we just also just give you praise for the celebrations of life that we've just shared this morning. Uh, we ask, Father, that you would continue to uh, equip us to, to love, serve, and, and celebrate uh, through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So you may not know this about me, but I love Broadway musicals. I do. Especially the really dramatic ones, the dramatic Broadway musicals, the scores, the storylines. For example, West Side Story. I know many of you are so young, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But West Side Story was a big hit with the sharks and the jets, and it took place in the city, and it was romantic, and it is action-packed. The Sound of Music. Who knows the Sound of Music, right? Okay, Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer. Now, Christopher Plummer sadly died last year. He was, the, he, was, um, he was the male lead in that. And when he died, the TV programs, they put on these sing-along, they showed the music and they did a sing-along of the sound of music with the captions underneath. Well, a few of us got together. Yeah, right there. We got together in our house, we had dinner and we watched the sound of music. Oh, I'm sorry, I got one more announcement. If you're in the sun, we got seats up here in the shade. We would love for you to come and, and be, be comfortable. And as the sun continues to progress towards the stage, you'll all be sitting right up here with me. But we got seats here. Okay, so we got together and we sang at the top of our lungs in our apartment the songs from The Sound of Music. I want to dispel a, a, a nasty rumor that there's a video circulating of me singing Climb Every Mountain in Soprano it is not true. If you hear about that, I want you to just sort of put that on your mind. Okay, one, another couple of musicals. Godspell. Who's seen Godspell? Okay, now, I want to warn you. Do not see the movie. It's terrible. If you can find it, even if a high school theater troupe is doing Godspell, go see it, but do not watch the movie. My favorite Broadway musical of all time, Les Mis. Oh, I've seen that, I think, eight times, maybe. Um, the main character in Les Mis is Jean Valjean. What a cool name. Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is an angry, hardened prisoner. He's in prison because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his starving niece. He was sentenced to five years in prison. 
hard labor. He tried to escape from prison, but he failed. And when he was caught, his sentence got increased to 19 years. When he was finally released, he ran into continued roadblocks of unemployment and unforgiveness. His rage and his suffering grew. Jean Valjean attempted to reintegrate into society, but this ex-prisoner finds only rejection along the way. At last, he turns to the charity of a bishop who takes him in for the night. But that night, Jean Valjean steals the bishop's silverware and runs away. He flees the house, but he's soon caught by the police. The police bring him back to the bishop, and there he is in the custody of police after yet again sinning against society. And as a repeat offender in this culture, he is going to be sentenced back to prison and to be in chains for the rest of his life because he's a second offender. But the bishop responded in a way that no one really saw coming, especially Jean Valjean. Here's what the bishop said, clearly for the benefit of the arresting police officers. So here you are, he said to Valjean. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten I'd given you the candlesticks too? They're silver, just like the rest of the silverware. And they're worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? Oh my gosh. This scandalous act of forgiveness changed Jean Valjean's life forever. And he went on to start a business, become the town mayor, and adopt an orphan girl named Cosette. And in the finale of the musical, he finally tells Cosette the name of her mother, Fantine. He dies content under the light of the bishop's candles in the candlesticks. And an angel played by the same actress who plays Fantine, the mother, an angel comes and carries his soul away to heaven. He's buried in an unmarked grave per his request after his death. Oh, I want to see it now. I want to go see Les Mis. Who wants? Who's with me? Okay. But the big theme of Les Mis is forgiveness. Jean Valjean wasn't actively pursuing it, but when it came to him at a very desperate time, it changed his life forever. So today we're going to talk about the forgiveness of sins. And I selected today's passage from 2 Corinthians, a letter in the New Testament. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Now this church was in need of help. They were dealing with divisions in the church, immorality, aberrant behaviors and beliefs. Paul had commissioned Titus to further instruct the church in Corinth through a series of letters. And he must have done a good job over time because Titus was reporting continued growth and favorable responses to Paul's teaching. Now, before we get too proud of how far the church has come since then, the church of today is not that different from the church in Paul's time. We still need to be reminded of our need to be reconciled with God, to be forgiven of our sins. The original church in Corinth strayed from the ways of God, and as we live here in this time, we need that same reminder. We don't need to look down into the headlines too far in any day to see the brokenness of our world, a world of injustice and poverty and sickness and inequity, a broken and sinful world. Yet at the same time, we see the miracles of life, the beauty of selfless sacrifice, and the hope of salvation offered 
to a gasping people in need of saving. That world and that hope is found in a personal relationship with the creator and sustainer of the world. But we have a problem in establishing that relationship. And that problem is our sin. And because God is holy and righteous, our sin must be dealt with if we are to be in relationship with him. But how do we understand how our sins are to be dealt with? First, let's understand what is sin. Let's, let's define it. Gruden's systematic theology book, which is about this thick and something that City on a Hill makes elders read and understand and memorize some of, defines sin as any failure. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Well, I think I knew some of that. Clearly, sin is when I do something that displeases God, when I lie, when I cheat, when I steal, when I curse, when I abuse, when I murder. Yes, I think we can all agree that these actions are sin. But listen to the end of the definition again. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in action, attitude, or nature. So a sin is when we do something, take some action that's wrong, but it also says it can be our attitude that's wrong in God's eyes. It's not just about my actions, but my attitude. I can still hear my mother saying, don't give me that attitude. But I'm not a child anymore. As an adult, don't you think that your attitude should be something that shouldn't be anybody else's business? I mean, it's an attitude, right? It's a feeling or a mood or a mindset or an opinion or an emotion. It's not an action that can physically reach out and cut or hurt or bruise someone else, right? Wrong. Actually, that's not right. Last week, Stephen taught us about the universal church, the people making up the bride of Christ and how we are all connected each having a different function and role, each person's role contributing to the uplifting and health of the rest of the church. And as we settle into that symbiotic network of sacrifice and service and care for one another and the community around us, our attitude will inform our efficacy, which is a new word I learned in the pandemic, efficacy. It's how effective something is. It's how effective a, um, a, a, an injection or a, uh, can be. We will not be effective in our goal of every person, every culture experiencing the gospel if our attitude is not honoring God. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And I love this book. In there, he recounts a story that he heard about a prostitute in Chicago who has, was in a wretched state. She was homeless, addicted, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Her social worker asked her if she'd ever thought of going to a church for help. A look of pure, naive shock came over her face. Church, she said. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They'd just make me feel worse. What is really interesting is about that women much like this prostitute 
They fled to Jesus in his time, not away from him. The worse a person felt about themselves, the more they saw Jesus as a refuge and a safe place. If the church is finding people at their lowest point, but then driving them away with their unspoken, ungodly attitudes, that is not what Jesus would do. Let's make the church a safe place for those who are afraid, a harbor of refuge for those in a gale, a hospital for those in need of healing. Let's not sit comfortably in an attitude that, well, as long as I'm saved, I'm good. Let's work, there's work to be done that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Let's not believe the lie that my internal anger and attitudes and lusts are harmful to those around me. That's a lie. Or how about this thought? Maybe there's such a thing as freedom of attitude. A little bit like our first amendment to the constitution, freedom of speech. An oversimple an inaccurate view of freedom of speech would sound like this. I'm free to say anything I want. I can think up any concept or thought, let my mind form the words in my language and let those words come out of my mouth for anyone to hear. I mean, they're just words, they're not actions. They can't physically hurt. So I'm free to do that and it says so in the Constitution. Wrong. Actually, there are clear examples of types of speech that are not protected by the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has called the few exceptions to the First Amendment well-defined and narrowly limited, and they include obscenity, defamation, fraud, incitement, truth, threats, and speech integral to already criminal content. So we are not free to say anything that comes into our mind. So just like there are exceptions and limits to the freedom of speech, I am realizing that while my mind and psyche can develop all types of attitudes, some are less positive and essentially sinful. Now in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments identify some sinful actions, of course, right? Murder, adultery, bearing false witness. These are sinful things that we actually can do. But it also calls out attitudes such as coveting your neighbor's wife or husband or possessions. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus prohibits certain sinful attitudes like anger and lust. And in the book of Galatians, Paul identifies attitudes such as jealousy, anger, selfishness as things that are works of the flesh and opposed to the desires of the Spirit. So, so far, I've said actions and attitudes can be sinful. Personally, I kind of feel like actions of the actions and attitudes, I actually have a little bit better luck controlling my actions. But my attitudes are harder for me to control. Actions tend to be physical impulses with outcomes resulting in me doing something. Attitudes are not physical, but emotional. But I bet a lot of your parents out there have seen a lot of attitudes in physical body language, right? So... Maybe there's something there. I might be able to keep my hand from stealing that Snickers bar at Home Depot, right, Austin? But how do I tamp down the thought or the feeling that dishonors God and others? How do I suppress something that is internal in my mind and in my heart? Anger, jealousy, lust are attitudes that do not glorify God and that are deemed sinful. 
this is going to be a problem. But the power of the Holy Spirit and the help and the support of brothers and sisters in Christ and community, I'm optimistic that my sinful attitudes can be reduced. Now, if the slimper, those slippery attitudes aren't trouble enough, let me really make you day and talk about our nature. Our nature can be sinful. Our nature refers to our internal character, the very essence of who we are as persons. One definition of nature is the fundamental qualities of a person or thing, identity, and essential character. Even our nature can be sinful. Well, doesn't that just take the cake, huh? How am I going to make changes to what is essentially me as a person? That definition says it's fundamental and essential. So I can't exactly grip my teeth and force my nature to be something other than what it fundamentally is. And the sin nature is that aspect in man that makes him rebellious against God. When we speak of the sin nature, we refer to the fact that we have a natural inclination to sin. Given the choice to do God's will or our own, we will naturally choose to do our own thing. Proof of the sin nature abounds around us. No one has to teach a child to be selfish or to lie. Rather, we go to great lengths to teach our children to tell the truth and to put others first. The theologian Charles Spurgeon says, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom in our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are being deceived. Humans are drawn to sin, and the history of mankind confirms that. War, slavery, systemic racism, greed. As a species, we are uniquely superior to all other species in our thinking, inventiveness, and ability to write and speak. But our sinful nature distinguishes us from other species in a less than flattering way. Now, animals may kill, but they do it for very different reasons than man does. So what should we do about our actions, our attitudes, and our nature? So taking these in order, let's see what we can do. Our actions, maybe that's within our control. Maybe we can just stop our lying, stop our stealing, stop our murdering. Maybe we can stop taking the biggest piece of cake from the table. Maybe we can stop that impulsive beeping of the horn when the traffic slows down in front of us. Maybe we, we can't just, why can't we just stop gossiping about each other? Stop spending money we shouldn't. Stop looking at content we shouldn't. Just stop. If you've tried the just stop approach to your active sinful life, you may have come up against the same frustration and disappointment that I have. I say to myself, no, just stop. But I don't always listen. Paul found the same roadblock in Romans 7. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. This I keep on doing. 
What about our attitude? Can I change my attitude so that it's no longer offensive to God? Well, maybe. First, I need to get over my First Amendment right to have a bad attitude, an offensive attitude. I need to actually care that this, albeit silent, attitude is offensive to God and others. I need to care about that. I think the principal cause of my attitude is my pride. In my mind's eye, I want to see myself as worthy and of value. If I'm being honest here, I want you to see me that way too. Being worthless and of no value doesn't really work for me. But my need for approval by you myself is ill-conceived because I'm valuable in his eye. He is jealous for me. How can God be jealous? He's jealous for me. He's jealous for you. My jealousy, I just said, when I'm jealous, it's sinful. My, but his jealousy is tied up with my joy and his glory. And his jealousy is not sinful. Anyone know the David Crowder band? They have a f- great song, How He Loves. And I love some of these lyrics. He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by his glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. The book of James, I love the book of James because to me, he's the most contemporary of the New Testament authors. He's like Tim Keller 2,000 years ago. I mean, the way he writes, the way he talks, he could be sitting here and you'd think he was going out for Starbucks or something, right? He writes in James 4, he says, well, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself there to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. God is a jealous God. He placed his spirit within us and he wants us to listen to it. When we ignore the spirit and attend to our prideful earthly passions, God resists us. When we humble ourselves to him, God gives us more grace. When we submit to God and resist the devil, the devil flees. When we draw near to God, he draws near to us. If you are a new creation in Christ, you are dead to your sin, so put it away. Put pure Jesus in your heart. Don't stand on one foot on both sides of the creek. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despair. It's okay to be broken and contrite and weeping and mournful 
because you know you have ignored your, the spirit in you, because you know you're a sinner. You can mourn that. You can grieve that. God will not despise that. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. I am very relieved that God is jealous for me. What do we do about our nature, though? I don't think we can change our nature. Can you change your nature? Can you change who you are, your identity? God can. God can change your nature. In our passage today, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us with this message of reconciliation. Only God can change our nature. Only God can create a new nature in a sinful body, a new heart for worship, a new desire to be in relationship with him. If anyone is in Christ, you are that new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Only God can create, change your identity. Now, you may identify yourself as American, Brazilian, French, married, single, divorced, widowed, white collar, blue collar, conservative, liberal. These are all identities that you adopt during your life. God's not really that interested in those identities. The identity that God is interested in is the identity that only he can create. And that is your identity in Christ. Your identity as a blood-bought child of the king comes, and it comes instantaneously when you are born again into the household of God. At that moment, your sins are forgiven. Ephesians 2, 4, 5 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Stephen spoke a couple of weeks ago about forgiveness like it, in the sense that it's like the balance on your credit card. And when we get near our credit limit, we feel like we need to pay off that balance. When we pay off our balance, it gets back to zero. When we need to get back to the place where we've paid off our balance and our sins are wiped away and canceled, that brings us back to zero. God's not looking for zeros. Basically, forgiveness of sins, as wonderful it is, and it brings us back to a zero balance in our sin credit card, it equates us with Adam before the fall. That's where we are. But when we put our faith in Jesus, God has a response. At that moment, God forgives our sins, brings our credit balance to zero. He also justifies us at the same time. That means he thinks of our sins as forgiven and he declares us to be righteous in his sight because without the righteousness of Jesus, God won't 
can't see us, can't look at us. Justification makes a positive deposit in our account that provides the righteousness of Jesus, which is what God sees. We are justified, declared righteous in God's sight through faith. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But how does God do this? Today's scripture says, 2 Corinthians verses 18 through 19 of chapter 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, which I think is a great picture. It's wonderful to say, I need my sins forgiven, but God is now reaching out to the world, all mankind across all time, reconciling the world to himself. So that not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God does this through Christ. Christ's atoning death on the cross, a death he didn't deserve because he was without sin, but a death he accepted, a death he paid for you so that your sin would be forgiven and wiped away, allowing you to enter into this relationship with a holy God. Verse 21 of our scripture today says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus came to pay a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. We couldn't pay this debt ourselves. Our sacrifice, our works, our efforts would be unworthy. Our human earthly works to atone for our unsins would have been useless. Our ungodly actions, unloving attitudes, unmovable nature and were completely unacceptable to God. And alone were unqualified to make them right before God. But in Christ, we are a new creation. Our old self has passed away. Our sinful self has died. When you realize you needed someone to save you, that you couldn't save yourself and that that son woman was Jesus Christ. You had a funeral for your old self. Is this good news? Is it good news that forgiveness is available for offenses that are incalculable? I think so. But sometimes my nature wants to go in a different direction. I have been offered grace upon grace upon grace if my sins past, present, and future have been covered by the blood of Christ, why not just sit back and let my passions run free? I mean, I got a get-out-of-jail-free card in the person of Jesus Christ. No. We need to go to the Word to understand why I don't do this. We need to know how we should live and how we, after we have died to ourselves. Romans 6 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace can abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus? 
were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And continuing further down, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So the Apostles' Creed states, among other things, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. As a Christian, I believe that I'm a sinner, and my sins are the things I do, think, and am that fail to conform to the moral law of God. And for me, I think my actions and attitudes, they're at that very edge of things that are maybe just a little bit too hard for me to deal with 100% of the time. And my nature is, it's just that, it's my nature. I can't change it. Do you think you can change these things on your own? Can you do enough to outrun your sinful choices and desires? No. But God had a solution to this unsolvable problem. That solution was to provide a sin bearer for all the sin of man in the form of his son, a lamb so unblemished that when he became the sin sacrifice for the world's day of atonement, God would deem it acceptable. But to be granted that whole complete forgiveness, we need to place our faith in that God. We need to acknowledge that our own paltry efforts to clean ourselves up to a standard of righteousness acceptable to God has and will continue to fail. But God wants us to come just as we are and have faith in that Jesus did the work for us and that my sins are forgiven. Now, as I conclude, I want to note that I did skip over a couple of passages, a couple of verses, 20 and 21, and they read, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. We are bringing the good news. God is using us to appeal to the world for reconciliation and forgiveness through Christ Jesus. But the first word is therefore in that sentence. So let's look back a verse to see what it's there for. Verse 19 says, he is entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We've been entrusted and tasked and appointed and empowered and responsible for the message of the gospel. The good news that God created the world for, and us, but our sins keep us from a right relationship with God. And that the God's son, Jesus, came to earth fully man, fully God, and died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for the forgiveness of all sin. The gospel is entirely summed up in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been forgiven, so let's tell others. This is the message we've been entrusted with. Let's pray. Let's pray. 